ready to start, restart, or re-energize your vegan or plant-based practice, you're in the right place. I'm Michelle Olander, and this is Veg Your Best. Episode 182, Picture Perfect Plant-Based Meals with Muriel Banakisa. Welcome, my veg, your bestie. Welcome and welcome back. I think most of us agree that we live in a world of visual overstimulation, right? You know, I'm a student of the history of art and don't, don't, I see your eyes glazing over, but one of the challenges in history of art is to attempt to see with the eyes of another time and place. Is this a time before color TV or films or photographs? Is it a time before printed materials or decorated buildings? What stands out in our eyes at any given time? And now we're in a newer culture where vegan and plant-based foods are becoming more and more normal to our eyes. Today's guest is Muriel Banakisa. Muriel is Montreal-based now. She's an accomplished photographer, recipe developer, and food stylist. And Muriel brings an exceptional aesthetic vision. You know, I always think of that old adage, the eyes eat first. Well, Muriel's work in her new book is A Feast for the Eyes. And on today's episode, Muriel will talk about her work, her journey as a vegan, and her brand new cookbook, Savoring. On her website and in her book, Savoring, Muriel honors and reinterprets her family's traditions and food culture to plant-based recipes that do not rely on the nuts and seeds so many other vegan recipes do. And you'll hear about Muriel's diverse influences And I think that many of us will see in her journey some of the joys and challenges of translating our own choices into plant-based ones and living a new vegan lifestyle without separating ourselves from the connections we hold most dear. So right now, let's get to the interview, and I will see you on the other side. Muriel Banakisa, welcome to Veg Your Best. Thank you so much, Michelle, for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. I have been looking, you know, Random House, Penguin Random House was so kind to send me a watermarked PDF so I could get an advanced look at your beautiful new book, Savoring. And you were just telling me it's been in the works since 2020? 2020 since 2020. (laughs) It's been a journey. (laughs) You have a plant-based cookbook, but it's more than that, I think, because you are a professional food photographer and stylist, and you've Mm -hmm. been presenting things uh, through a beautiful blog and a beautiful website for years. Um, I I don't know how we're going to do you justice in a podcast today, but we're going to, we're going to tease them and then send them over to see all your beautiful work. So tell me when in 2020, um, a lot of us were 
rethinking things <laughs> for the year. What, yes. what made you think about your new book, Savoring, then? So I actually was approached by Appetite, which is um, a subsection of uh, Random House, of Penguin Random House. And they asked me to write a proposal for Savoring and to put kind of my ideas together of a vision I had. And that's really how it started. And then I already had recipes that I knew I wanted to kind of share with the world that I hadn't really shared before. I knew I wanted the book to be a little bit of an ode to my cultural heritage because I come from a a, a mixed background. So my mom is of Russian heritage, grew up in Ukraine, and my dad is Congolese. And my family immigrated in Canada in 2002. And so, you know, I have a lot of different life experiences and cultural influences in uh, the food that I create. And so that's everything I put in the proposal. And once it was accepted and the deal was signed, I just started working on it. And it's been a long journey, but it's been a very rewarding, inspiring, exciting journey to be able to put all these recipes together. And now to think that like I'm only a couple of weeks away from sharing them with the world is just it feels like a surreal. It's a dream. The title is Savoring and it will be published on March 5th, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. You you talk about your, your family culture. You are are you in Montreal or are you in Quebec? Uh, you're in Montreal? Yeah, I'm in Montreal. Yeah. You're actually in Montreal. My husband's from Montreal. And something I think a lot of people don't realize about Montreal is what a multicultural city it is. I think a lot of people think, oh, well, it's probably Anglo-Canadians and French Canadians, but no, no, it's yeah. a very multicultural place, isn't it? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, uh, it feels like almost like a country of its own, the island, like it's so small and yet so diverse. And it's, I think it's a perfect place for someone who loves food too, because you get to discover all these flavors from all different places. You don't have to go very far, like within like a one hour bus ride, you can cross like multiple neighborhoods and find yourself in like the best Ethiopian restaurant of the city. So it's it's on the, it's really wonderful to, to be in the city. Yeah, it's definitely a, a food city and a cultural Mecca. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. And I was looking at the recipes trying to decide, um, well, you also are, your language in Congo was also one of the languages in Congo was was French, mm -hmm. right? So that part was fairly smooth. Yeah, I mean, fairly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, you know, I grew up French was my first language and it then was. Russian was my second one. And then I learned English much later on when I was like uh, in my preteens. But um, the French in Congo is more closer to like French from France. So when I came here, it was still an adaptation because there are some words that people use in Quebec that I had never heard before and like the accent too, I had to get used to, but I was so young that I picked it up so quickly. And right now my French is really Quebecois. It's not Classic really Québécois. French. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely. So when you also, so you come with a, a language, uh, which was essentially the same, but had a different flavor to it. Mm -hmm. What, how did that work with food in your family? Because you were a young woman in 2002 or young, you were a girl in 2002 yeah. when you came. And um, I, I know from families and, and friends moving to a new country, sometimes your food and your language are the two things that you really are very um, 
concerned about, uh, concerned about losing in a new place. So what, yeah. so French, what you weren't maybe so concerned about losing, but what about the food? What were you worried, your family may be more worried than you? Yeah. So what was very interesting is that with the transition of like the move across continents also came a transition of like who was in charge of the cooking. So when we were in Africa, we actually had someone who would cook for the family. So she would take care of like the big meals. But then when we would have like gathering, let's say with friends, it would be more my mom who would cook like a couple dishes here and there. And those dishes tend would tend to be more dishes that she grew up with. So like Russian, Ukrainian dishes. And then when we came to Canada, she became the one really in charge of all the cooking. Um, and so my mom, one of the things that she really wanted to do was to, you know, also try the foods that are here, right? So like she started feeding us broccoli, which we didn't really have before, like different root vegetables that we hadn't tried, like berries are not like super common. I mean, they weren't back then, especially like in Africa. So there was a, a whole new world of flavor that was introduced to us, but also it was kind of a great opportunity for my mom to like kind of spend more time creating those classics again, you know, the ones that she grew up with. And those became as well, like the staples in our culture, um, like our our culinary culture as a family. Um, my dad is not really a cook, so he wouldn't really cook much at home. Um, and so his the, the dishes that were more Congolese inspired, we would have more like when he had like church events and then people would bring different dishes and those happened like not very regularly. So that was something that I felt I missed a little bit, especially in the first um, maybe decade or so of our arrival here in Canada. But when it comes to dishes more from my mom's side, I never felt like there was kind of a void. It's more like when I became vegan that it was like, okay, how do we do this now? How do we eat these dishes again while, you know, being vegan and changing the recipes so that I can eat them? So tell us about that journey. So there was the journey to North America and then there's yeah. the journey to a vegan and plant-based uh, cooking yeah. style. Yeah. So that happened, I would say maybe not overnight, but in a very short period of time, I would say maybe six months that the transition happened. Um, no one in my family is vegan, um, but I watched a documentary. <laughs> I watched Earthlings. And when I learned about the conditions in which like animals are treated in factory farms, I just, I could no longer be vegan. So that was my big reason. Uh, I'm sorry. I could no longer eat meat. So that's, that was really my big reason for transitioning to veganism. And then I, because no one in my family was vegan, I had to kind of learn how to cook for myself um, and to try out new dishes. So then I started going on blogs, trying out other recipes that I had never really tried before and kind of grow my knowledge in terms of veganism. And when I felt like comfortable enough with those kind of like staple dishes, that's when I started tackling the dishes that were more like traditional dishes that I grew up with. And so my mom was really helpful in that. She is a person who's like super open-minded. Although she's not vegan, she wanted me to keep eating some of these dishes that she would cook. So for example, the borscht, which is a recipe that is in my cookbook, is one of the first recipes that we veganized. And it was pretty easy. It was really just like taking out the meat and putting in white beans instead. And so slowly but surely, like we started reincorporating these dishes. And because my knowledge with food to increase over time, 
it became easier to do that um, and to swap out different ingredients, like introduce new cooking techniques. And now, like, I mean, most of the dishes I grew up eating, I still eat, which is has been really wonderful to still be connected to my cultural heritage while being vegan. I think that is such a great message for everyone to hear, because I think so often we assume we're going to have to cut ourselves off from other people and from our culture and from our traditions because we don't eat it exactly the same way. But so most of the food is vegetable. Most of the food is, you know, mm -hmm. grains and starches, most of it. So we can just, and the side dishes, and we can make yeah. those stars so much more. You know, one of the things I saw from your mother's culture are the blini. You have a recipe mm -hmm. in the book for blini with a smoked tomato instead of smoked um, salmon, which is yes. the kind of classic, which that I can't wait to try that one. Those are so good. They like every time we make them for like the holidays or like a party, like they go so fast and they're really addictive. And yes, sure. Maybe the texture of the smoked tomato is not exactly like salmon, but ultimately it's really like the flavor components, right? It's like, it's that smokiness that we're looking for. It's that like whole texture on, you know, in our palate that we're looking for. And then mixed with the blini, which is, you know, whether you put eggs or not in it, it's still a blini. Like people can't really taste the difference for the most part. And, you know, another thing is like we live, we're so lucky to live in 2024 where there are so many vegan options now, you know, like for example, sour cream, there are many vegan sour creams out there. And it's just great that we can rely on these little, staples that are available to include in our recipes. Um, yeah. In the different recipes that we're making. Yeah. I don't think when I first started and probably when you first started being vegan, um, the, the vegan dairy uh, replacements weren't as good. I don't think. Oh no. Oh my God. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Like we've come such a long way. So it's, that's really a big thing to be grateful for. And it makes the transition easier too, for people who want to rely on a couple of, you know, replacements as they're transitioning into veganism. Yeah. And I think that's also a very good, uh, very good reminder for people is sometimes um, you had a very concentrated ch transition because of, of what you had seen and what you had learned about um, animal agriculture. Um, other people um, may want to take it a little slower or may feel mm -hmm. like they can't figure out how to make that work with other family members that they're cooking for or cooking with. And these sorts of choosing, seeing, maybe I'll swap out the dairy, the, the vegan mm -hmm. sour cream is sometimes a very simple but really positive step. Oh yeah, absolutely. You really don't have to go cold turkey at all. And I think the going cold turkey can become more overwhelming for some. Like I remember for me, like initially I was like watching all these videos on YouTube, like how to make sure like I eat enough food, how to make sure I get all my vitamins. And it felt a lot all at once. And thankfully, like when I made the transition, I did it with my husband. So we were able to kind of support each other in it and, you know, do it more smoothly, but some people might not have that. They're, they might be completely on their own. They might be the only vegans that they know. Um, so yeah, definitely taking your time and like slowly learning as you go, trying new foods, watching videos, reading books. It really helps. 
And some other of the Eastern European style recipes that I noticed were, okay, so there was, which is uh, the salad, the composed salad. So oh, yes, the sugar. sometimes they call it a Russian salad in this country. <laughs> um, and, and it, it very often it has eggs and um, meat, but how, what's, 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 what makes it a Russian salad for you when you have changed it? Yeah. So for us, like the way my mom used to make the shuba, it's layers of, usually it's smoked heron. So like um, a smoked fish. And then you have like potatoes, carrots, beets, onions. And then there's like a mayo dressing that's kind of layered in between the different layers of the salad. And this is actually my aunt who came up with this. Um, instead of having the fish at the bottom, you replace it with seaweed that is soaked mm. in a little bit of tamari. So you still get that fishiness, that little like umami flavor, but you don't have any fish in it. And it's like, you know, my brothers who are very far from being vegan, they love the salad just as much as I do. So, you know, anyone could really appreciate the salad, even if it doesn't have the traditional fish in it. That sounds absolutely fantastic. And what a great, what a great, you, so you get that kind of marine, that kind of sea mm -hmm. flavor. That's marvelous. So the, uh, now that is more the, your mother's side. What in the book echoes your, your father's and uh, your culture through your father's side, the Congo? Yeah, so the big recipe would be the saka saka. So this is um, a, a dish that's made with cassava leaves and spinach and bell peppers. It cooks for hours on the stove. And it's one of those dishes that it's not like really pretty to look at. It's kind of like dark green and stewy, but the flavors are just so wonderful and comforting um and you usually serve it with uh, either a side of rice or you can have you can serve it with fufu which is another recipe in my book it's kind of like a cassava like um it's it's like kind of a replacement for bread i would say but it's sticky so you can dip it in the sakasaka eat it with your hands and you can serve it this whole platter with fried plantains and it's just the perfect for me when i think of like congolese flavors i grew up with it's it's those all together um it's very comforting very rich satisfying and like you get tons of greens which is great now you're you you say it's not the prettiest dish i just want to interject you are a very very talented photographer you have worked professionally this is not just a hobby for you um to to have a blog one of the things we can learn on your website is how tips to make ugly foods pretty when we're yes. photographing them. Now I know you use a real camera. You don't use, you don't use your cell phone for all of it. Um, but I, I, I just want to remind everybody at, after this, uh, to go onto your website, Muriel Banakisa and, uh, download that because I think that you're going to really, um, all of us take photographs of our food yes. now it's a <laughs> so this is an Absolutely. area <laughs> yeah and even I I mean I, many times when I shared my stories I don't use a professional camera I just use my phone and the phone cameras are so good these days and these tips can be applied to any photo that you take whether it be with a professional camera or just with your phone so they're just fun tips to include I think that's great. And there's also a PDF for um, uh, vegan pantry essentials, also beautifully illustrated. So I think it would be a great thing for everybody to go, as soon as we're done talking, to go and look at that. Now, with the foods, with we, be, I think because of our visual culture now with social media, we combine in our heads 
food and the visual of it even more strongly than we did mm -hmm. 40 years ago or 50 years ago. It's, and you have a real visual style, I think, I think you would admit, mm -hmm. and it's very warm and it's very, um, there's almost a narrative structure to it. You feel like there's a story going on with every dish. Tell me a little bit how that evolved for you. Yeah, for me, it's funny because when I first started food photography, the style I gravitated towards was very bright, very, very airy, very white. Um, I think it's, it was just because my skill was just not as developed back then. So it was easier to shoot very bright photos because when you shoot more moody photography, you need to control the light a lot more. You need to reduce it. You need to create more shadows. You have to be intentional about it. So it does require maybe a little bit more skill and practice to get those type of images. Um, but what kind of drew me to the moody style is just this sense of comfort, this sense of like, you just feel wrapped up in the food, in the image. It just draws you right in. And I really like taking photos that have um, more like warmer undertones, um, just because again, it, it's kind of like, it reminds me of a sense of comfort of like the sun, the African sun under which I grew up uh, for a part of my life. And I try to bring that into the photography that I create. And I also, when I style scenes, I like to kind of like what you said, create a certain narrative. So have the viewer of these images kind of project themselves in this scene, kind of feel what it would be like to be in the scene of the bush or in the scene of the Saka Saka. So I, I like to add little props that kind of remind the viewer that, you know, this is a scene where you could actually be eating. So you can have a glass of water or you can have like extra napkins or little garnishes on the side to really create this sense of, um, yeah, like this natural aesthetic um, that I think a lot of people relate to and like. I, I think it's beautiful. I think it, it reminds me, and some of them really remind me of this kind of Dutch golden age still lives where you have, mm -hmm. you know, you have like a, a little gl a little glimmer from a from cutlery in one area mm -hmm. and something organic like uh, dried flowers or or yeah. or the linen napkin that's kind of a little bit more matte. I love the composition of them. So it's another good reason to not hesitate to get this book, which is going to be coming out March 5th. And I think we can pre-order if people hear this before March 5th, right? Yeah, absolutely. You can pre-order anywhere in the world. Actually, it's available on Amazon in Europe, uh, in Asia, in most places. Uh, and in Canada, yeah, in like all the big bookstores. And if ever you do have a bookstore that's near you that you'd like them to carry the book, you can request them to order it for you as well. So that's also a possibility. That's marvelous. Now, what what is the, um, I'm wondering if you could give us a couple of like, like short answers of things we can do to bring some of these flavors before we see the book into our cooking maybe this week. What is a, what are some flavors that come from your mother's culture and some flavors maybe that come from your father's culture that we can experiment with mm -hmm. that maybe we don't typically use in North America or as much as we should? Yeah, I think, I mean, from my mom's cooking, one of the big things that I talk about in the book is 
is why the book is called savoring is this idea of really taking your time with the food. So it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say like there's one specific ingredient, but there's kind of like a philosophy of how to cook. So really taking your time and not rushing through anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of extends even for my dad's side. Um, but the Bush is like a perfect example. I actually had to film it last week for real. And it's a recipe that is very methodical. There are very specific steps you have to go through. Um, and you can't really rush through these steps. You have to let the ingredients kind of cook slowly but surely, get to a specific stage before you get on to the next step. And that's kind of what I want to encourage people who are going to try my recipes or who want to just incorporated maybe something new in their cooking is really take the time to just enjoy the process of cooking, taste your ingredients as they cook, you know, notice how the onions change colors, how the mushrooms change colors, and try to also be kind of mindful of, you know, everything that you're you're creating and taste as you go, because that's one of the things that I've learned in cooking that, you know, we all have different palates, right? So if for you, you like more salt or less salt or more spicy or less spicy, really don't hesitate to adjust the recipe to that. And yeah, that would be kind of my bigger, it's more of a bigger overarching theme, but I think it's something that people can bring into the kitchen right away today. So that I think that's a very uh, interesting distinction to be made that it's not just the ingredients that we're doing. It is the it is the mindfulness. It is the process of mm-hmm. making our food. I mean, I think onions are always a good example of how you can you can quickly stir fry onions, or you can let them slowly yes. cook. And it's a two two completely different ingredients. Absolutely, and like we have debates with my husband about this all the time because he's more of like a quick and go type of person in the kitchen. And I always tell him just take a little a few extra minutes and I promise you it will make a big difference. Yeah. That what is your your husband's food culture? Uh my husband is Canadian. Like Canadian. both of his parents are from Ontario. So that that's a different thing that you're going to be focusing focusing um, on how to So he does he enjoy um less spicy foods maybe? Actually now with time like we've been together for now it's going to be 12 years so he is like very used to like spicy food he loves all the classics I grew up with like every single recipe in the book he's eaten and enjoys um and he's always so happy when my mom makes like her russian ukrainian dishes like there are some of his favorites so oh. yeah and one one recipe i saw that you maybe created for him. I think that's what you wrote is the vegan tiramisu. Yes. Yes. The vegan tiramisu. So when I was growing up, I, one of my first loves for food was desserts. I used to love creating cakes and I would like spend so many hours on the internet trying to find the best cake recipes. And when I found this tiramisu recipe, I was just in love and it became a classic in my house. And then for one of the first Valentine's Day or anniversary, I forget when we were together, I made him a, t- a vegan tiramisu and he just loved it. It was gone. Uh, no, sorry. It was not vegan. Wait, we weren't vegan. It was that tiramisu recipe that I had found. And then when I became vegan, it took years for me to kind of try to attempt tiramisu again, because it is more of a trickier recipe to get that cream right is is hard but i knew when i started working on my cookbook that i had to have a vegan tiramisu because of the fact that it had like a 
special place in my heart and in my history with Sam and my family. And so that's kind of how the vegan tiramisu came to life uh, in Savoring. That's one of the ones I have to try because I, I, I do miss a tiramisu. And also tiramisus are so different everywhere you go, right? Yes. Some are very creamy. Some are much more, more sponge cake style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can't wait to try yours. And what is one other thing we, that we, we know everyone is going to want the book for when they know that you've got a recipe for, um, let me think. I mean, chocolate cake is always a classic. People like chocolate cake and chocolate chip cookies. Those are... Oh, your chocolate chip cookies look fantastic. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful picture. Oh, I love the chocolate you. chip. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think those... And then there's also a poutine. There's a sweet potato poutine in my book that's inspired by Quebec. I mean, poutine is like one of the you know, the classic Quebec dishes here. Tell, tell Americans what that is because we, we don't all know that. <laughs> Yeah, so poutine, usually it's a dish that is made of a, off of fries. And then you have like this squeaky, these like squeaky cheese curd, curds, right? Yeah, so squeaky cheese curds that are put on top. And then you pour like a hot gravy on top of that. So the fries get softened, the cheese gets softened. And yeah, it's huge here in Quebec. You find it everywhere in most, uh, you know, Quebecois restaurants or little, you know, these little like restaurant shacks by the highway when you do like road trips across the province. Um, and it's a dish that I wanted to replicate in the book, but I wanted to give it more of like an elevated twist. And so instead of having just regular fries, I use sweet potato fries that are home baked. And then I make my own gravy using dried shiitake mushrooms. Um, and then I add a bit of uh, bourbon in it. And it's really good. It's rich and has like nice umami flavors. And in, for the cheese, I actually use vegan feta because there's quite a few very good feta companies here um, in Quebec that make... Feta, vegan feta that tastes just like regular feta. And I, what I like about it is that it has a bit of like that, you know, tanginess that feta usually ha has, and it works really well with like the sweetness of the sweet potatoes. Um, so yeah, that dish is very good. <laughs> That's, I'm glad you mentioned that one because I did not notice that in the book. You know, with the uh, reading it digitally, it's, yeah. you don't see everything. That's, I have to look for that because that is a, that is a, um, my son went to school in uh, in Quebec, and my my husband grew up in in Quebec in Montreal, and um, it, it's a it's a dish. When they mention, sometimes people have no idea what they're talking about. I think yeah. to get you through a cold winter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. It is like the definition of comfort food for sure. Yeah. Here. Before we close things up, what is um your 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 blog is exquisite and you've got a beautiful Pinterest um thank you uh page Pinterest page and you're on Instagram and we're going to tell everybody to go to Instagram because that's where they're going to be able to hear um, what's coming up with the publication date of the book and everything coming out mm -hmm. what is something um I think you've you've mentioned that taking time works with food and also works with your photography your style of photography mm -hmm. What advice do you have for people to kind of slow down a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the things I would say is to kind of designate a certain amount of time that you have in the kitchen. Because sometimes one of the reasons that we rush through cooking or even through life is because we 
we're just trying to get through our to-do list and we don't really like have like a set schedule of when we get things done. Um, for me with cooking, if I tell myself I have one hour and I get to be really present in this one hour and really be connected to my food and really enjoy the process, it, I kind of like allow myself to just be there and present uh, as opposed to when I'm like, okay, I just need to get this this dish really ready quickly it's it's a bit harder to be present. And if it means that for you, you have to kind of like create a routine around it, maybe put on some music, maybe drink something that you enjoy drinking while you're cooking, it really helps to create an event out of that cooking moment that you have. Yeah, I think that's that's those are very wise words. You're a young woman and that's very wise words that the rest of us need to uh to implement because we I think we're too scattered and there is oh, such yeah. joy when and I think looking at your book savoring that's we will savor it with our eyes and then hopefully we'll all mm -hmm. give a, at least a couple of the recipes a great try. Muriel yeah. Banakisa, thank you so much for being on Veg Your Best. Oh, thank you so much Michelle for having me. It's been lovely. So, so, what did you think of Muriel? Muriel Banakisa's website and links to pre-order or order savoring, if you listen to this after March 5th, everything will be in the show notes. And if you are at all on the fence, at all on the fence, please follow Muriel Banakisa on Instagram and check out her website with these free resources. Number one, there's vegan pantry essentials. And of course, her two food photography and styling resources, five tips to make ugly foods pretty, and brown food magic, which is a Lightroom preset Muriel offers to bring warmth, contrast, and life to your food images. There's actually a lot more there to see on murielbanakisa.com. Okay. My veggie bestie, I hope that you will savor today and experiment with that essential ingredient Muriel recommended today. A little extra time when your schedule allows. Until next week, as always, veg your best. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So until next week, make it easy and veg your best.